0: Hello and welcome to The Mariner's Library with me Chris Tammer Major. In this episode we're continuing the book The Search for Captain Slocum by Walter Magnus Teller. We're on the fourth chapter. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course the mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews. How to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 4 A Little Bark Changing ships is like changing loves. The old love exits, the new love arrives. Slocum now bought outright from P. Whitridge in Baltimore a ship, in his own words, a little bark of which all man's handiwork seemed the nearest to perfection of beauty, and which in speed, when the wind blew, asked no favours of steamers. A time when masters as well as owners were turning to steam was hardly the moment to invest one's dwindling means in a sailing ship, but Slocum was determined to keep on as he had begun. Like Thoreau, he heard a different drummer and stepped to the music he heard. The Aquidneck, as the fast sailing bark was called, was hardly a fifth of the size of the Northern Light, but in tonnage, more like the old amethyst. She had been built in Mystic, Connecticut, in 1865, and as she was now in need of repairs, she went into dry dock. Meanwhile, Virginia and the children went to live with one and another of Josh's married sisters who had settled in the neighbourhood of Boston. Like the captain himself, most of the brothers and sisters, reversing their forebears' migration, had gone from Nova Scotia to Massachusetts. Virginia welcomed the change to a life ashore, for the tumultuous voyage of the Northern Light, with its constant alarms, had undermined her health. Her heart was not strong, her daughter wrote. Temporary lodging with her sisters-in-law seems to have been congenial. One of them, describing her as a handsome woman, said that Virginia and the captain were deeply in love and could be completely oblivious of everyone and everything if they could be together. By spring of 1884, the Equidneck was ready to make her first voyage for her new commander and owner. Victor and I, wrote B. Amar, were at Aunt Alice's home when we were ordered to come to Baltimore at once. The ship was loaded with flour for Pernambuco, Brazil, and Slocum, with his family aboard, set sail once more. Garfield, born too late to remember the northern light, remembered well the later home. The saloon on board the Aquidneck was a beautiful room, he wrote. Parquetry floor, doors, panelling and ceiling painted flat white, open scrollwork over the stateroom doors painted light blue and gold. The captain's room had a full-size bed, porthole etc., and the other rooms a single bunk, a bracket lamp with oil, held by a metal bracket, two metal rings to allow the lamp to remain upright when the ship rolled or pitched. There was a long table and in rough weather racks were put on the table, The table was built around the mizzenmast. Swivel chairs were bolted to the deck around the table. There were also some loose chairs, a skylight with coloured glass, a canary that sang all day, beautiful singer. Also a square grand piano was bolted to the deck. A large lamp was bolted onto the mizzenmast and there were wall bracket lamps and double doors in the companionways forward and aft. There was a cabinet with glass doors for carbines, guns and revolvers and ammunition. The pantry was off the saloon. Plates and saucers were kept in boxes on a shelf built the right size with slots. Cups, mugs, soup tureens hung on hooks. There was a storeroom for groceries, canned goods etc. for all hands. The deckhouse was amidships. A fully equipped carpenter shop, galley, staterooms for the bosun, cook and carpenter. On the roof were pens for sheep, pigs and fowl. Father had a large library on board the Aquidneck. He also bought a lot of books and toys for me. He was very kind and stern. Victor described the bark as being as close to a yacht as a merchantman could be. It was a pleasant voyage to Pernambuco. While the Aquidneck lay moored by the breakwater, Virginia and the children had good times ashore. There was a coconut grove where they liked to picnic on Sundays. From Pernambuco, the Slocum sailed for Buenos Aires, but soon after passing Santa Catarina Island, 500 miles below Rio, Virginia was taken ill. She stopped making candy, doing embroidery, making stockings and tapestry. I remember the piece she worked on last, Garfield wrote. She left her needle where she stopped. Virginia went to bed and did not see land again. She was in bed when the ship reached the Plata River and anchored in the outer roads. At Buenos Aires, the estuary of the Plata is 34 miles wide, but so shallow that in those days before channels were dredged, Ships drawing more than 15 feet were forced to anchor 12 miles outside the city. In this situation, the captain went ashore in a public sailboat to interview prospective shippers of freight. He was trying to get a cargo for Sydney, as Virginia wished, so that she could see her people again. Before he left, he and Virginia agreed on a signal for his return in case he should be needed. The signal was the blue and white flag, letter J. J for Joshua. Early on the morning of the 25th of July, Virginia was up again, busy salting butter for the voyage which she hoped would take her home. B. Amar helped her. He was 12. As is often the case in a family of several boys, there was one who liked to help his mother. But soon after this, Virginia called him to hoist the letter J at once. Father returned about noon, B. Amar wrote, and I was called by father at about 8pm to kneel at her bedside as she breathed her last her eyes closed and motionless. Virginia, not yet 35, was dead. She was buried in the English Cemetery at Buenos Aires. Captain Slocum had lost, then, the only two women who had any meaning for him, his mother when he was 16, his wife when he was 40. In losing Virginia, he lost the woman in whom he had finally found the warmth and companionship a man must find, or remain forever hungry. Joshua and Virginia had been married thirteen years. Now, left as his father had been left with young children to raise, he took down her Bible, which had been in his hands more than once when weighted bodies went sliding along a plank or board over the main deck bulwark, and wrote, Family Record, Virginia Albertina Walker, born August 22nd, 1849, New York City, Married thirty-first of January eighteen seventy-one to Joshua Slocum, died twenty-fifth of July eighteen eighty-four. Thy will be done, not ours. Joshua Slocum, born February the twentieth eighteen forty-four, married Virginia A. Walker thirty-first of January eighteen seventy-one at Sydney, New South Wales, died. Thy will be done, not ours. Slocum was on easy conversational terms with his deity. Old sailors may have odd ways of showing their religious feelings, he wrote years later to a cousin in the clergy, but there are no infidels at sea. We old sailors even have stowed away in our hearts, and God knows it, the longing to call on a father, and we do so. If Virginia had lived, Slocum might have had a happier life, and posterity might never have known him. B. Amar wrote that she knew father better than all others. She knew father could sail ships. She also knew more about father than herself. On many occasions mother had proved herself to be very psychic and had many times reminded father of failures that need not have occurred had he taken her advice. Father learned to understand her powers of intuition and he relied on it fully until she passed on. His ill fortunes gathered rapidly from the time of her death. Only a few days after Virginia was buried, Slocum ran the Aquidneck aground on a sandbar in the Plata. After getting her off at heavy cost, he sailed for Boston with his broken family. B. Amar was put in charge of both Jesse and Garfield. The latter, about three, was very stubborn, so Jesse helped me. After the voyage home without his mother, B. Amar never again went back to the sea although father wept when I begged to be left ashore at his sister's in Massachusetts. To Virginia's mother in Australia, Slocum wrote, Washington, D.C., 10th of February, 1885, Dear Mother, while I am here with mine and Virginia's old friends, my heart goes out again for your poor aching heart. I have just been to the art galleries looking at the picture that our dear one looked at a year ago, and talked with friends in the high society of this great capital who loved her dearly, but who say, oh, we will soon meet her in heaven. I feel most of the time that Virginia is with me. It has pained me, though, to have to give up my beautiful wife when we were getting so many enjoyable friends and getting in comfortable circumstances. I would have had some money in my hand by this time if I hadn't got crazy and run my vessel ashore. As it is now, I am just swimming out of trouble on borrowed money, Of course the vessel is mine, and I may be lucky enough to earn something with her. If I do, you shall hear from me, dear mother. The children are just lovely and healthy. I shall strive to do well by my loved one's children. I shall try, mother, to make her happy in heaven. She was, I know, happy with me here. She knew that I loved her dearly, and always loved to be in her company. What a terrible separation this has been to me. I send you a photo of our dear one's grave. The name Virginia is in gold and shall be kept in gold as long as I live. Goodbye, dear mother. We will write you from Brazil. Yours in affliction, signed Josh. Acting and thinking now without Virginia, Slocum tried to hold his course. He made three swift voyages between Baltimore and pernambuco on one he carried a cargo of pianos and machinery. In those days, stevedores drove cordwood among the lading, but on this particular voyage, the rolling and pitching of the ship worked the cordwood free. The pianos got loose. Snapping of wires was heard all over the ship. Father lost money on that cargo, Garfield wrote. B. Amer summed up, Father's days were done with the passing of mother. They were pals. Garfield put it even more clearly. When she died, then father never recovered. He was like a ship with a broken rudder. Chapter 5. The Voyage of the liberdad Slocum had owned the Aquidneck two years when, at the end of a voyage, he went to Massachusetts to see his young children, who were parceled out among his sisters, Alice and Etta, at Natick. Victor, now fourteen, remained with his father. The captain was, sad and very much alone, seeking company and a remedy for his lonely life, wrote B. A. Ma. In his search for guidance, he even went to a spiritualist, not an unusual move in that more credulous age. On that visit, he met a first cousin, who, coming from the same bleak coast as himself, had emigrated to Massachusetts and become a seamstress and dressmaker. He had not known her in Nova Scotia, however, because she arrived two years after he had left. Henrietta Miller-Elliot, or Hetty, As she was called, was born in Annapolis County in 1862, and so was 18 years younger than Slocum. She was now 24 and pretty. The captain was 42 and lonely. He was an ardent person, certainly demonstrative and showing affection, a relative wrote, and Hetty was no doubt bedazzled by his attentions when he was considered successful. Captain Joshua and Hetty were married in Boston, 22nd of February, 1886. Her family was not so keen on the marriage on account of Josh wanting his wife with him on the trips, the same relative wrote. Virginia had been dead 19 months. Hetty said of her husband, I called him Josh, sometimes Joshua or Captain, if I thought he needed the honour. She said that Slocum spoke his mind freely and that it did not hurt his feelings to let you know what he was thinking. Six days after their marriage, the Captain and Hetty set sail on their wedding trip, The new wife went aboard the same ship into the very same cabin in which the old wife had died. Victor went along as mate, and Garfield, the latter perhaps, for good luck. The voyage proved to be filled with adventures common to the life of a sailor. The equidneck sailed from New York on a storming day with a cargo of case oil bound for Montevideo. Almost at once she encountered severe gales. She began to leak and had to be pumped continuously for 36 hours. After discharging at Montevideo, the Equidnex sailed up the Plata, past Buenos Aires, where Virginia lay buried, to Rosario, where a cargo of baled hay was taken aboard for Rio de Janeiro. However, because of cholera at Rosario, the charter became subject to rapidly changing quarantine restrictions, as well as political reprisals between Brazil and Argentina. The Brazilian government would not let Slocum proceed to Rio, but ordered him to Ilia Grande, the quarantine station instead. He arrived there 7th of January 1887 and was met by the Brazilian turret ship Aquidaban, Captain Mello, and ordered in no uncertain terms to clear out at once. The wisest course at this point would have been to jettison the disputed hay, but Slocum carried it all the way back and laid up at Rosario until the 9th of April, when Brazilian ports were declared open. Three weeks later, the Aquidneck sailed into Ilha Grande for the second time, with the same cargo of hay, and finally to Rio. The captain wrote, the cargo was at last delivered, and no one was made ill over it. A change of rats also was made. At Rio, those we brought in gave place to those from Don Pedro docks, where we moored. Fleas, too, skipped about in the hay, as happy as larks and nearly as big, and all the other livestock that we brought from Rosario, goodness knows of what kind and kith, arrived well and sound from over the water, notwithstanding The fumigations and fuss made at the quarantine. This is typical of Slocum's account of subsequent events. It is not the style in which ships' logs are usually written, but then the captain was not the usual style of captain. From Rio, the Aquidneck sailed south to Paranagua Bay to pick up a cargo of mate for Montevideo. July 23rd, 1887 brings me to a sudden and shocking point in the history of the voyage that I fain would forget, but that will not be possible. Slocum wrote later. Between the hours of 11 and 12pm of this day, I was called instantly to defend my life and all that is dear to a man. Some of the cutthroat crew Slocum had shipped at Rosario had planned to murder and rob him. The behaviour of their ringleader had been so threatening that Hetty had been unable to sleep. It was she who heard the first footsteps on the poop deck, and by waking her husband probably saved his life. When he came on deck, the mutineers jeeringly challenged Slocum to order them forward. He did so, but instead of obeying, they attacked him with knives. Slocum shot two of his assailants with his fifty-six carbine, killing one of them. This was a calamity for which he had to stand trial. While on parole, he engaged a Spanish master to take the Quidnac to Montevideo. After being discharged by the Brazilian court, he joined his ship there, but hard luck followed The crew contracted smallpox. Only three men, one of whom was young Victor, were well enough to work the ship. Half the crew died. Getting back to Paranagua Bay, in sorry condition, the equidneck went into the timber business. But then the captain discovered that he did not have the right kind of longboat for cruising in the inlets. He decided to build one. Its length was dictated by the space between poop and deckhouse. After spending Christmas 1887 at Gurukasava, the Equidneck was loaded and started across Paranagua Bay for the ocean, but currents and wind caught her foul near a sandbar and she stranded broadside on where, open to the sea, a strong swell came in that raked her fore and aft for three days, the waves dashing over her groaning hull the while, till at last her back was broke and why not add her heart as well, for she lay now undone. She was uninsured. When the Quidneck was lost, Garfield wrote, Then father lost all of his money and our beautiful home. The wreck was sold and the crew paid off from the proceeds, but not enough money was left to buy passage home for the captain, his wife and sons. In this plight, Slocum might have applied to the nearest US consul, one of whose functions is to repatriate destitute mariners. Only, of course, that was not Captain Slocum's way. Slocum, in his black business suit and black felt hat, was the archetype of the proud, self-reliant Yankee skipper. A man of his calling, commitments and purpose was bound to return in a boat of his own command, his own deck beneath his feet, even if he had to build her himself. And in this case, he did. After removing his compass, charts, chronometer, most of our luggage and some of the furniture from the stranded Aquidneck, Slocum decided to complete the longboat begun on her deck. In spite of a jungle fever, he set to work. He had only a poor kit of tools, but he had good help from Victor and the native sawyers. Hetty, the ex-seamstress, did her part. Madame made the sails, and very good sails they were too. On the 13th of May, 1888, the little craft, half dory, half Japanese Sampan, was launched. She was named Liberdad because it was the day on which the Brazilian slaves were freed. Her length was thirty-five feet overall, her breadth seven and a half, and three feet was her depth of hold. Who shall say that she was not large enough? How the Lebedard, armed with a license to catch fish inside or outside the bar, succeeded in carrying the captain and his wife and two sons from the scene of the disaster, was told later by the Ulysses of the voyage. The old boating trick came back fresh to me, the love of the thing itself gaining on me as the little ship stood out and my crew with one voice said go on The Liberdade drove north but rounding Santos heads a squall burst on her which tore her sails to shreds and sent her into Santos under bare poles as is often the way with sailors in foreign ports Slocum met a friend Captain Baker of the mail steamship USS Finance about to depart for Rio Captain Baker gave the Slocums a tow over very rough water. Hetty and I were on board the steamer, Garfield wrote, and we would stand and watch for the Libidard to come up over a huge wave. Father had a lot of nerve, strength and willpower. He steered all day and all night. Victor sat in the forepeak under a tarpaulin, an axe in his lap to cut the hawser in the case the Libidard turned over. Father had a lanyard tied to Victor's wrist. Father would pull on it and Victor responded with a pull. Both were wonderful men, plenty of courage and brains and endurance. On the 23rd of July, 1888, the Liberdade sailed from Rio. When the canoe encountered a whale who lazily scratched its enormous back on the little keel, Slocum quietly noted that, for broad rippling humour, the whale has no equal. There were experiences with dangerous reefs and treacherous natives, but confidence in the thin cedar planks between the crew and Eternity grew steadily. By the middle of August, the Liberdade had reached Salvador, and from there she sailed to Pernambuco. After leaving the latter place, the family Slocum had its narrowest call. Sailing toward the mouth of the Amazon, Slocum steered too close to the shore. Once clear of the horrible danger of comas breaking over the shoals, the captain observed that any weather that one's craft can live in after escaping from a lee shore is pleasant weather, though some may be pleasanter than others. The sailing was fair as they neared the line. One night a phantom of the stately Aquidneck appeared, sweeping by with crowning skysel set that fairly brushed the stars. No apparition could have affected us more than the sight of this floating beauty, so like the Aquidneck, gliding swiftly and quietly by. On the nineteenth day out from Panambuco, the Liberdade made the Barbados. Her course now lay through the Caribbean to the coast of South Carolina. Then it was pleasant inland sailing to washington d c where the captain and his crew arrived twenty seventh of December, eighteen eighty eight The Slocums had sailed some five thousand five hundred miles in fifty-three days in a boat which cost less than a hundred dollars outside of our own labor of building more than that they had learned to love that little canoe as well as anything could be loved that is made by hands. After complimenting the crew on its bravery, the captain added for himself, With all its vicissitudes, I still love a life on the broad, free ocean, never regretting the choice of my profession. In Washington, where the Slocums remained the winter, the captain, a celebrity as a result of the remarkable small boat voyage, was photographed by Matthew B. Brady, Slocum's performance had brought a measure of fame, but no money and no job. When spring came again, he and Hetty and the crew of the Liberdad cast off from the Potomac River dock, where the boat had been moored since its arrival, and sailed to New York by the inland waterway. In New York, Hetty gave a version of the voyage to a writer for the New York world. It was a different and less enthusiastic story than the one the captain was writing. Tales of Captain Slocum and his wonderful small boat, La Libertad, sick, had been told far and wide. The world wanted to know what the captain's captain, Mrs. Slocum, had to say about it, and sent a reporter down to the small boat, bobbing and rolling, with every ripple of the tide that flowed around the grey stone walls of the barge office, close to which La Libertad was anchored. Can you get in? This question was Mrs. Slocum's greeting when her husband introduced the reporter, whom he had just handed on board, and who stood at the entrance to the low, canvas-covered deck house, the only shelter afforded by the limited accommodations of the boat. The hostess sat in the wee cabin on a plank running the length and raised about three inches from the deck. A sitting posture was the only attitude possible unless one chose to lie down. Mrs Slocum is young and strong with bright hazel eyes and a remarkably well-formed nez, a frank smiling mouth and a chin expressing both firmness and tenderness are the features of an oval face which has acquired a rich bronze tint from months of exposure to tropical suns and ocean breezes. Here is the face of a woman who would be capable of the most devoted, intrepid deeds, done in the quietest and most matter-of-fact way and never voluntarily spoken of afterwards. She wore yesterday a dark blue serge yachting dress with short skirt and blouse, waist trimmed with rows of white braid, and a blue straw sailor hat which she had taken off and was holding in her slender brown hand. Mrs. Slocum's voice is low and full-toned, although she says she is from Boston, that region of thin, high-pitched feminine utterance. Her manner is gentle, and she spoke with some reluctance of her voyage. It is an experience I should not care to repeat, although now that it is mine, I feel a certain satisfaction in having gone through it. Just there, pointing outside the entrance, stood by two big water casks, Behind them, provisions were stowed. There's the stove over which we did our cooking. It was a small iron pot on three legs, in which a handful of charcoal could be kindled. When we reached colder latitudes in November, we sometimes used to heat the cabin, letting the gas burn off, and then placing it at the entrance. Didn't you grow weary and lonely during the long voyage? The loneliness came and went early in the voyage. The weariness grew because it was impossible to get any exercise, there was no chance to walk on the narrow deck, and much of the time it was not possible even to stand outside. Were you more oppressed by a sense of loneliness when you first embarked? Yes, when we left Rio, they gave us a great send-off. Captain Slocum had obtained a permit to all ports duty-free from the Marine Office, and also had been granted permission to sail under the flag of Brazil. They thought it a great honour to allow so small a craft to carry their colors. Crowds of people assembled on the quays to see us off and they cheered us wildly, it was very exciting, and then as the land grew dim in the distance and finally faded from sight, it seemed very desolate on the sea. In a few days, however, I had learned to like the life on board. I became accustomed to my surroundings and was not only contented but happy. We had plenty of books when we started. At several ports where we stopped we got more, and the steamship which we spoke, gave us a quantity of magazines. Wherever we touched the most lively interest was manifested and when we went ashore we were delightfully entertained. At Puerto Rico we lay two days. The United States consul there invited us to dine and drove us out to his father's plantation where we had a charming time. Are you going on another voyage, Mrs. Slocum? Oh, I hope not. I haven't been home in over three years and this was my wedding journey. Mrs. Slocum said she was going from here to Boston for a visit, adding, I shall travel by rail. I have had enough sailing to last me for a long time. A year later, Slocum sailed back to Washington in the Libidard and presented the boat to the Smithsonian Institution. In all that time, he had not been able to get a ship. With steam cutting deeper and deeper into sail, there was not enough sailing ships to go around. Furthermore, his record as master was far from spotless. At this point, Slocum was unable to support his family, which certainly must have been bitter to a man of pride and belief in himself, and Hetty had to retreat to those very relations who had not wanted her to marry the captain in the first place. The alliance with Hetty, which, as a relative wrote, was to keep a home for his children and himself, was put to a very great strain. Naturally, the same relative wrote further, After the Aquidneck wreck and the voyage home in the Liberdad. Hetty found she was not holy for that life. It was bad all around taking Virginia's place as a wife and trying to do right by the children. Within the space of five years, Slocum had lost wife, ship and worldly fortune. He was 45 and in debt. Now his profession was gone as well. He never secured another command. The age of steam had fully arrived while Slocum remained in the age of sail. As a merchantman, Slocum was defeated at last, but only to prove that in the long run there need be no indignity in defeat. The voyage in the Libidard had carried him further than he knew. Both the voyage itself and the book he wrote about it foreshadowed the great voyage and great book to come. Well that's all for today, I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly, and remember of course you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.